This is a Federal News Network podcast. Like the game of Monopoly, Defense Department money comes in many colors. Unlike the board game, each color in DOD has a specific, non-interchangeable purpose. When it comes to buying software, that represents a problem which the Air Force is hoping to fix in next year's budget. That and more in this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni. And Jared, we'll start with you. The issue for the Air Force is that software is not just a thing you buy in a shrink-wrapped long past that era. You're developing, you're maintaining, and you're planning all at the same time? It goes back to the the mantra that the uh, Defense Innovation Board kind of first coined for DOD, which is that software is never done. And yeah, that's the whole idea. You're continuously developing, continuously iterating, and it just totally defies this whole idea that the defense budgeting process is built on, which is that you have an R&D phase, an O&M phase, um, and a procurement phase. It, it just doesn't make any kind of sense for software, which is the reason that Congress finally agreed at the uh, behest of DOD to create this sort of colorless money pilot program for software. And, and our listeners are probably getting tired of me writing and talking about this so much. But one of the reasons that I, I do keep highlighting it in the notebook is I continue to be a little bit surprised that neither DOD nor Congress has really taken up uh, this this uh, pilot program and, and scaled it up to the size where you could actually start to see some results. That's kind of the point of what the Air Force is doing in this year's budget proposal. Up until this point, the Air Force has been the only service that has had zero programs in this colorless money pilot. And now for 2023, it's proposing several of them to finally get in on the game. So we'll see what Congress does there. So basically, the Air Force is trying to catch up with what has become more or less DOD software buying doctrine? Yeah, and, and as I kind of alluded to before, there's there's not been widespread adoption across the military services and defense agencies, but everybody's got at least a program or two in there at this point. Congress also has been slow to expand this program. Part of the um, issue with the appropriations bill for 2022 was that things kind of got thrown together at the last minute, as we remember in the omnibus, as we were several months into the fiscal year. So they just kind of stuck with what the programs that were approved for 2021 without expanding what is uh, now called the Budget Activity 8 pilot. But that's one reason, I think, why the Air Force has had no approved programs up until this point. Space Force has had one Navy's got a couple in there. Army's got one, and there are a few um, in the in, in DOD's fourth estate. But up until this point, the Air Force has really not participated. The overall defense budget request for 2023 would increase the the total amount of dollars allocated toward these colorless money pilots by about a billion dollars. And almost all of that is explained by these new Air Force programs. And just a final question on that. Is there any hope that this can be resolved through the commission that is supposedly looking at the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process across DOD? Sure. And and, and the two issues really are intertwined. And that's one reason why I think that commission and, and people who are going to be looking at it would like to have seen some results from these pilots to help inform that whole PPBE reform effort. I'd be surprised if they don't uh, have some words to say about how to how to budget for and program for software as part of that overall bigger look at the PPBE process. But it'd be nice to have some data for them to go on to help inform whatever recommendations they do come up with in that area. And that's why, to my mind, the more pilots you can have in this experimentation process, the better. 
And that's Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. And for a look at another ongoing unresolved issue, we turn to Scott Mossione. And that is, will there be a National Guard component for the Space Force? Yes, no, Scott, what's the latest? Yeah, well... That's As you said, this is something that's kind of gone back and forth since the beginning of the Space Force, even before the Space Force was an actual military service. And right now, a bipartisan coalition of lawmakers are introducing a bill that will actually create a Space Force. And interestingly enough, these uh, lawmakers are ones that have the most space assets in their states. That includes Diane Feinstein from California, Marco Rubio from Florida, Jason Crow from Colorado. You know, these are all very high space assets, uh, concentrated areas. However, the Space Force isn't exactly sure that it even wants a National Guard unit. Uh, One of the things that General Jay Raymond, who's the chief of space operations, said is that the Space Force wants to create a space component. And that would be sort of this hybrid uh, component that is a mixture of Guard and uh, uh, National Guard units that can move back and forth easily from active duty to reserve to the guard and the whole point is to allow the space force to be this really flexible unit and one that is revolutionary that's what they're trying to do they have they're the first military branch to be started in about 75 years so that's what they're really hoping to do so we've seen critics on one side and then we've seen others that say let's just kind of move forward with this this national guard thing and at least give the uh, Space Force an opportunity to have some part-time service members to work in their service. Right. And although Bacon might be bipartisan, does this have congressional-wide support, this type of thing? Or is this likely to pass even in this session? It's hard to say. This would be something that might be folded into an NDAA for maybe 2023. Some of the people that are talking about this are saying, you know, why does the Space Force really need a National Guard? You know, why would a governor ever need satellite operators to support a state and local issue? Do they need this fairly bureaucratic organization when they can just use something that is like hybrid, like they've been talking about? And, uh, you know, some people are saying that it's these state representatives basically trying to stake their claim and create uh, larger guard components in their own states, which creates jobs and et cetera, et cetera. So there may be a little bit of political football along with this as well. And Scott, one more thing I wanted to ask you about is something you have been reporting regularly on, and that is the tragic sailor suicides aboard the USS George Washington while it has been in dock for an overhaul or a partial overhaul. And now this has gotten the attention of the defense secretary. Yeah, that's right. We saw the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, talk to Congress this past week. And, you know, it really means something when the defense secretary is getting into uh, a little more of a single service issue. So we know now that that uh, it's getting some high level interest. And what he said, basically, is that it's an important issue that he's asking for money in the budget for additional resources for greater access for troops to have telehealth options, to have more mental health options, and also that the Defense Department in general is looking harder into suicide this year. Uh, they've created an independent uh, committee that is going to be looking into suicide and and looking into some recommendations that could help. We've seen suicides at some of their highest numbers in the past year, nearly more than 500 in 2020. They are, are really look waiting on two investigations from the Navy at this point looking at climate and command aboard the ship. And, and right now that ship is is in Newport News. The maintenance is taking longer than expected. And some of those sailors are still aboard the ship, which can be 
dirty and noisy and and really not the best living conditions. Sure. So when it is in dock undergoing repair, then you've kind of got dual responsibility. The Navy, it's still their ship, but then you've got contractors all over the place also. Yeah, there's there's contractors coming in. There's, uh, you know, there's certain aspects of the job that sailors have to do as well. And it's just not really the best living condition that they could expect. One of the representatives during this hearing said, that for hundreds of these sailors, there's no access to housing, a car, they're stuck on the ship, they're, they're listening to noise, it doesn't smell great. It's just really not the best place you'd want to be living when it's not sailing through the sea. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni and Jared Serbu check out their latest DOD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. At University of Bridgeport, our master's degree in business administration will give you the competitive edge you need to get ahead in your career. Complete your MBA on campus or online in as few as 12 to 15 months. Visit bridgeport.edu slash MBA to learn more. Apply today. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.